Welcome to Flip the Script, the show where we talk about all your favorite adapted films and where they got their start. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you that the following episode will spoil important plot points from the movie and its original source. I'm your host, Kim Labick, and I hope you enjoy the show. So today we're going to be talking about Sleepy Hollow, or The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. It's called a couple of different things. And today I'm joined by local Sleepy Hollow expert, Luke Swankowski. Perhaps there is a bit of witch in you, Katrina, because you have bewitched me. You literally just read my favorite quote, the next line in my notes. Are you serious? Yes. I really thought I had found... You know, the needle in the haystack there. Damn, well, spoiler alert, that's the next section. All right, guys, that's our podcast. Uh, We'll see you next week. Tune in next time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, again, this is my friend Luke. Uh, We met in somewhere in college. I don't even know. Well, I think we met when we were uh, both projectionists at the uh, MSU uh, movie theater on campus. We were never projectionists at the same time. But I think that's sort of how it happened, because you were a little bit involved with the films committee, and I feel like that's how word got to you to become a projectionist, if I remember right. Yeah. So wasn't it sort of like a one-two punch? It was like, hey, you like films. Want to press play? Because that's basically what that projectionist position was, was like a glorified press player, but... With money, yeah. Yeah. It was good. In popcorn. I remember one of our first conversations that you and I ever had as, like, friends was about Star Wars. Because I remember you asking me, you were like, okay, what do you think about the prequels? This has been one of the defining conversations for our friendship, still to this day, like, years later. We will just every now and then be like, all right, so let's talk Star Wars. And it's perfect because your name is Luke. I'm so glad you brought this onto a public platform because I feel very confident that your audience is going to be on my side on this. But please continue. Oh, God. Oh, we should. Sometime we will have to talk Star Wars. I'm just going to overall say, as it stands right now, I believe the prequels were not executed well, but the overall story is awesome and deserves a format. That's my thought. Interesting. Um, Speaking of not executed well, how do you feel about, did you get a chance to read the original Sleepy Hollow story? Oof. I did what I did in Honors English, and I just kind of spark notesed and looked it up online. You read Sleepy Hollow in English? Oh, no, no, no. I was just referencing the fact that I, like, never read anything in Honors English, but I just looked it up online and, like, read the spark notes. Oh. Understood the whole, like, overarching ideas. And that's what I'm taking from my internet research into this. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, fault you on that. I think you probably did yourself a huge service. I so I not to shit on American history, but I kind of want to just talk about how terrible this story is. Like the original Washington Irving story, I think is uh, lots of room for improvement in this story. I will say, and. The, the movie itself, however, the Johnny Depp, Tim Burton production of 1999, um, I think is one of my favorite movies growing up and is just like an amazing adaptation of pretty poor source material. So I'm excited to like dig into this. I have taken, I think, more notes than actually is in the story itself. So um, <laughs> I'm just going to read them uh, top to bottom for you. And that'll be our episode. 
All right. Before we dive into all of your thoughts, what would be, because I know you definitely have a couple of favorite quotes up your short t-shirt sleeve right there. Calling me out for wearing a t-shirt? I'm sorry I didn't dress up for this, Kim. Dude, I'm the same. Yeah, fair (laughs) enough. But it's also, you're living in an environment that's 95 degrees and literally on fire. So like, I think it calls (laughs) for a t-shirt weather. But okay, so here's some other quotes I wrote down that just blew my mind, like that I loved or were sort of hilarious. Um, Okay, so here's a great one, Um, kind of a theme of the whole piece. Katrina goes, "Uh, what do you believe in to Ichabod Crane? Ichabod wakes up. This is him kind of after he had passed out from shock at first seeing the uh, headless horseman. Mm -hmm. And he wakes up and he goes, sense and reason. I can't. This is my Johnny Depp voice. Sense and reason, cause and consequence. I should not have come to this place where my rational mind has been so controverted by the spirit world. Love it. Ichabod is so, like, overly logical, which ends up being kind of his downfall in this, but... Debatable. Okay, so in the original story... um, Hold on, so are we gonna... Do you want to talk about the story itself right now, or the movie? Because that's like two very separate conversations to be had. All of it, really, is what we want to get into. I mean, this podcast, we try and encompass like a little bit of... You know, we'll go off and be like, oh my god, I love this scene in the movie, and then we'll counter and be like, well... That didn't even exist in the source material. But also, last thing before we really jump into it, and I'm sure that you have like the history background too, but I want to say we're talking mostly about the, le- or the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is the Washington Irving like 1820 short story. And then we're also going to be talking about that alongside the Tim Burton classic Sleepy Hollow, which came out in 1999. And again, so the podcast, we, we try and encompass like as many adaptations as we can, but these are kind of the main ones. These are kind of the ones that people are going to know and want to talk about. But I do want to mention there are five other films, including the like Disney animated 1949 one. And there's also like more than a handful of TV movies and episodes. And there's like a 2013 series, Sleepy Hollow, that ran for four seasons on Fox. So there's a lot of material there, but going back overall, I want to talk about mainly the Tim Burton versus the original short story, what we liked, what we didn't like about each, what we think best serves the story of Ichabod Crane and that horse guy. Yeah, that headless horse guy. Um, So if we start with the beginning, so what's I think what is interesting and what I can appreciate the original story for is like the sort of historical perspective it brings. So it was written in 1820. And this is sort of like the like the nascent phase of American literature. And so this is pre Walt Whitman. This is before my boy Edgar Allan Poe. This is like the very first stories to come out of American culture. So if you look at like 1700s literature, it's usually like British or French. Um, Even if it's like taking place in America, it's like through the British or French hands and minds. But when we get to the early 1800s is when we start establishing like our own national identity as this new country. And it's really interesting to see what we came up with. So you have stories like this, you've got Rip Van Winkle, you've got other things that I should be able to think of, but you have all of these early stories. And what this story is is about is about the idea of like on the edges of civilization on the edges of New York in this sleepy little uh, town called Sleepy Hollow, there is uh, 
you know, science meets superstition here and superstition ultimately wins in the end. And so it's, it's an interesting, like, it was a bit of like a reckoning for me as I was reading the original story with just like how much like faith and superstition shaped American culture at this time. Um, I think it's something we all kind of talk about, you know, like the Salem witch trials and, uh, you know, our Puritan beginnings and everything. But reading a story like this, it was just like a slap in the face of like, not only is there no science going on in this community, but like it is fundamentally driven by a school teacher, Ichabod Crane, who encourages science or I mean, encourages superstition and witchcraft. Um, and he does it for his own sort of selfish reasons to be kind of the center of attention and the main gossiper in town. Anyway. So wait, so in the story, well, first of all, in the story, he's a school teacher in like the, the Washington Irving original source material. Anyways, he's a school teacher in the story, but in the movie, he's like, he's a cop, basically like a cop detective guy. Yeah, he's he's a police constable, which I had to Google, um, and it's essentially like sort of like a light police officer. So like you are representing the police force. So like New York sends him out in this in the movie, right? It's also hinted that it's just like to get him out of the city because he was being such like a troublemaker. If you remember in like the very beginning of the story, this is actually he's fascinating. Ichabod Crane in the book or in the movie. God, what am I even saying? <laughs> in the movie, Ichabod Crane is a fascinating character because it actually digs into his entire family history and like what motivates him. And he's sort of this protagonist in a world that is a bit uncaring and obviously like medieval when it comes to torture and justice. And he, he's this one guy, like this beacon of light who gets cast out of New York to go down or upriver 45 minutes to Sleepy Hollow. And he is essentially there just to get out of the way of people in New York. And so immediately you're on this guy's side. And I love that. Yeah. And kind of talking about, you know, what you mentioned about we get like all this backstory with Ichabod in the movie. It's really cool because, you know, we get a little bit of his childhood trauma. We get like hints at his family dynamic and all told through these dream sequence bits that are also very like fantastical or whatever yeah fantastical i like it let's do it is that yeah fantastical which is cool because that also shows you that he in his heart he like knows or not knows but he like believes some of this already so him being such a logical scientific person it's interesting that we get that backstory to see a little bit of like all right, he, he's got some kind of witchy stuff going on in his mind. So, you know, we can get him there. Yeah. Um, so I, I will say too, like, let's dig in a little bit into the actual text. So if you look at how Ichabod Crane is written, the language of the story, I think, is actually really fun. Washington Irving, you know, that guy turns out he's a pretty good writer. Um, and so he's got some really awesome, like, turns of phrase. Um, so like, if I go to, so here's how he's um, introduced in the actual written story from 1820. Mm -hmm. So he starts off here, the cognomen of Crane, which is sort of like his nickname. Um, the cognomen of Crane was not inapplicable to his person. He was tall, but exceedingly lank with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves, feet that might've served for shovels and his whole frame most loosely hung together. 
His head was small and flat at top, with huge ears, large green glassy eyes, and a long snipe nose, so that it looked like a weathercock perched upon his spindle neck to tell which way the wind blew. I, like, paused when I was reading that, and I laughed my ass off. I thought that was brilliant. That's really good writing. Just, like, imagining the, like, ridiculousness that he's explaining of Ichabod's nasty-ass face. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's like, God, this guy is unattractive. But I love the idea that, like, his head would be an actual weather cock thing, you know, like the thing that spins on the top of your house when the wind changes, you know, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. and it kind of fits who he is, too. So he's, a you know, kind of a lanky kind of guy. But it's so they try and establish this story. So the way he writes is kind of a slow, like lilting way of, you know, very fun. He really kind of hangs on the scenery, um, really chews over, especially the food, not just the scenery, but the food. And it's, I think, completely unnecessary to the story. But there's a weird aspect of Ichabod Crane that he is just obsessed with food in the original source material. I think Tim Burton was very smart to just scrap that whole part of the story. But like his driving force in this 30 page story is to just flirt with as many women as he can so that they will cook as many meals for him as they can. Like I'm not making that up. That's what gets this guy out of bed. Um, There's also some really troubling like aged parts of the story that just don't apply to our world today. At one point, the narrator and also let me pause here and just talk to am I talking too much? Should we you want to switch back here? Nah, keep going, man. Okay, great. Um, so worst case scenario, I'll cut out everything you say, and it will only be my voice. Please just make it <laughs> like a Fight Club situation where you really have just been talking to yourself this entire time. Love it. Another thing too, if you take kind of the historical perspective on this, is that like fictional writing at this time used a bit of like an omniscient narrator most of the time, sort of like a third person who would kind of walk you through the story. Think about like Grimm's fairy tales and stuff. So. They would be written in such a way where it's like, and now, dear reader, let me introduce you to our friend Ichabod Crane, right? (laughs) And so it completely removes you from the story, and you feel like the person is sitting on the couch next to you, kind of like reading this story to you, but it doesn't put you in the story itself. It always kind of keeps you just at arm's length from the immediacy of the moment of what's happening, and I think that actually is a disservice to it when it tries to have these intense moments at the end. Um, with the headless horseman chasing him to the bridge. Um, I think what happens there is we are so removed from the story because of that writing, um, because it's sort of written in hindsight, written from the perspective of this kind of uncaring, omniscient writer, that we just feel like this is happening to someone, but not to us. And I think what a movie really excels at is putting you in someone's footsteps. And so that's why I think the movie is like infinitely better. That's why you need to flip that script and make a movie out of this thing because it's so much better that way name drop love it uh i do want to say this is a conversation you have uh, you and i have literally had extensively on how the point of view of a movie can benefit a story over a book uh so i think it's interesting that in this time you're saying that the book point of view does a disservice to the story whereas the movie enhances it and i would I would say that the movie, the movie point of view does a great job in its own right. But I would say that there's in this story a benefit to being sort of um, what you were saying earlier of like, it's not Ichabod's point of view. It's like this other guy's point of view, at least in the story. It helps in the perspective of like, if you're watching this character, then you don't necessarily immediately relate to this character. So off of the bat, you have a little bit of distrust in him. 
you you almost like are I don't know, and I haven't read it, so I can't say it, but I would say you probably are more on the side of the townspeople than you are of Ichabod because of that, like because you're detached from him personally. Yeah, it's sort of interesting because it, it is a short story, and so there isn't much character development. Um, it's it's a story that's short enough, and I, this is actually, I think, like an intentional thing done. Um, Poe um, was adamant that any story he writ, um, any story he writ, um, wrote, written, <laughs> Any story that Edgar Allan Poe wrote, he was careful to write it so that it could be read in one sitting. Um, I remember him saying that, like, it's important to be able to take in a short story in one sitting. That's the fundamental purpose of a short story, is that it transports you to a world, and then you finish it, you get up, you move about your day, but you experience that world undivided. You know, it's like unparceled, right? So I, I, this story, you can do that. Um, I did that today. I read through the whole thing again. Um, so how I originally read this story, remember when I texted you like a couple months back and I was like, you're not going to believe <laughs> like how shitty <laughs> Sleepy Hollow is. It's the worst story. You remember when I sent you that text or whatever? Oh, that's why I asked you to be on this episode specifically. Okay. I was just so disappointed because I'm not like a cynical person. I'm not like a negative person. And I, in general, I love short stories because they appeal to my love of reading and my love of not that much reading. And so it's sort of like a perfect uh, little half and half. And I wanted to love this story because I love the movie so much. And the movie is how I know this story. I actually never saw the Disney version until this week. Um, I never knew the origin of the Headless Horseman or Ichabod Crane. And so uh, my girlfriend handed me, uh, she has a younger brother who had finished reading a bunch of stuff over the summer and so she showed up one day and she's like, hey, I've got like 50 books for you. And I was like, awesome. And so um, one of them was The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And so I sat through it and I read it. And I just sat there in disbelief over just how overblown this whole thing seemed, you know? Yeah, I mean, sometimes the book is not better than the movie, guys. And that's the whole lesson. That's it's not a, always a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. I, so, I mean, there's so much I want to talk about that I love about this movie. There are a few things I love about the story, but I think, like I mentioned, the like the turn of phrase is really fun sometimes. It's pretty concise, and it's, like, telling, although there's weirdly, like, five of the 30 pages are dedicated to, like, the spread of food on the table <laughs> at the various places he is... Because as a school teacher, this is before, like, education was institutionalized in our country. So, like, as a school teacher, you would just travel around and be like, hey, I'll teach your kids if you give me a place to stay. And so he's just, and, like, the town just puts him up and he beats the shit out of these kids in the school. He's, like, a bad person. That's another issue, too. He beats the kids? Yes. So he, this is, you know, a different time, I guess. Um, not to excuse it, but so the exact quote is, um, he was a conscientious man and ever bore in mind the golden maxim, spare the rod and spoil the child. Mm. Ichabod Crane's scholars certainly were not spoiled. So spare the rod and spoil the child. If you don't Damn. beat that student with a rod, you are spoiling them. That was the maxim of him as a teacher. Right. And the story totally plays it off as like, that's Ichabod. Like, that's a fun, quirky thing about him. It's like an uncomfortable thing to read that but i know that that was a thing but it's it's like it's weirdly 
it's written in such a lighthearted, fun, childlike, whimsy tone. And then it's like, yep, and he loved to beat those kids. You know, it's just like that weird kind of tone. Um, there's also some very obvious and problematic racism. And this is, again, in the story, not in the film. Mm-hmm. So in the story, um, here is some quotes. And this is like uncomfortable to even read, um, let alone say out loud. The story is essentially like we haven't even I haven't really explained the story, I guess, have I? But um, he's a new school teacher coming to Sleepy Hollow and um, finds out that the most eligible bachelorette in town is the daughter of the richest uh, guy in town. And so he sets his mind to like, I'm going to win over um, Katrina Van uh, Tassel, the richest girl in town. And Brom Van Bones, or his his name's actually Brom Van uh, Brunt. Basically Chad. Yeah, um, he's Chad. (laughs) So, um, so Brom Van Brown, Brom Van Brown, Brom Van Bones. So he, his, um, also that name is weirdly similar to Dwight Kurt Schrute. I don't know. This, this was my thought as I was reading it, but. How is that similar at all? All right. Ready? I'm going to do this. Brom Van Brunt, Dwight Kurt Schrute. Yep. I'll pretend that I hear the similarity. They sound the exact same, Luke. Thank you. Totally on your side. Thank you. And excellent. (laughs) And moving on. So he's like the, you know, like the strong man in town. So of all of the eligible bachelors, he's the toughest of them all. He's sort of like the, uh, you know, he's he's the kind of fun uh, prankster kind of guy who's rambunctious, but the most threatening. And so no one messes with what he wants. And he's been chasing after Katrina for years. And she's always kind of kept him at arm's length because she loves to be um, flirtatious and so she likes when guys are kind of chasing after her and so she'll kind of cozy up to someone else and then let Brahm step in and scare him and then cozy up to the next person not at all damaging to anyone's uh, self-esteem or anything else right right and so it became clear to me that there are actually no characters that are likable in this story and that was like a big problem I had too so Ichabod is clearly self-interested just in the money and the and the renown of um, being with the wealthiest girl in town. Okay, and another problem here too is um, it very much fails the Bechdel test. Ooh, so yeah. Katrina Van Tassel actually doesn't have a single line of dialogue in the entire story, um, or I guess, you know, a single quote. In the entire story, she is like talked about from the narrator's perspective or Ichabod's perspective, and people react to her but she never actually has any agency of her own. When you, It's one of those things that, like, when you read it, I don't know. <laughs> it's not good? Yeah, I get. yeah. Do you happen to have offhand the description of Katrina? Because when you talked earlier about, like, there's this really cool, like, unique, extensive, fun character description of Ichabod, I'm willing to bet that her character description is something along the lines of, and this pale blonde chick who's super skinny with, like, a beautiful body. Moving on. Guarantee that that's it. It's worse. It is. I, I would I would say it's a predatory description of Katrina. Like, I Ugh. like it's. Un- All right, here we go. Ready? She was a blooming lass of fresh 18, plump as a partridge, ripe and melting and rosy cheeked as one of her father's peaches and universally famed not merely for her beauty, but her vast expectations. So the the two things, her beauty and her family's expectations, two things she has no agency over. That's that's the calling card of Katrina Van Tassel in this original story. Disgusting. 
I mean, isn't that like, I don't know, I guess all stories from this time period are going to have these kind of problems, but this is the only one I've really kind of studied and like the movie is so good. And for this to be the source material, I think is like a fascinating lesson in how to take an original concept and not only like modernize it, but just make it infinitely better and just so much more fun and everything else. Mm -hmm. Even just on the concept of women in this story, like we, we have at least two named women, not including like the one who got, what is it, decapitated? Yeah. But there's at least two, actually three, including the witch, main character women who like do something in the film. And also Katrina's character specifically seesaws between being like, we're rooting for her and we're like skeptical of her. And if you're, if you're listening to this, you should have seen the film because otherwise, major spoiler alert, but in the end, we like her. She's good. She's awesome. And that's especially interesting given the fact that she does witchcraft. Like, we, we see her do witchcraft and witchy things, and she's good in the end. And I love that we we don't get that, like, classic cliche femme fatale thing. You know, that it's not just like, she's like this beautiful temptress and is a terrible witch. Like, I'm glad that we flip that and make it more serving of the story and more interesting. Yeah, so here's my question for you, Kim. Mm -hmm. I wrestled with this myself. Um, do you consider the movie to be like a feminist interpretation of the story? Um, first, I would say like we have to we have to specify that it would be a white feminist interpretation. Yeah, you know that's like the baby step in the right direction. Um, but there's like not a single person of color in this movie, not a single person of a different sexual orientation, and it's 1999, which it makes sense for the time, but that's not an excuse. So starting off with that, but as far as like the white feminism of it goes, I think that this was overall a very good white feminist interpretation. Because again, like not only Katrina's character, but like the witch character, like the actual like creepy witch in the woods, she's even like a good person overall. Like she's creepy and she's terrifying, but she helps Ichabod in his quest to find the Headless Horseman. And she also, like, she knows that she's going to freak out and go all scary witchy. So she, like, cuffs herself so she's not going to, like, actually kill this guy or hurt this guy. Yeah. And I think she does, like, tear away from him. But she still doesn't inflict any damage on Ichabod. And she does help him in the long run. Even though she's, like, the classic creepy spooky witch. Yeah, she's, like, self-aware enough to actually, like, restrain herself, you know? Like, she she understands that she's about to be a danger to him. And, like, she's trying to help him, even though, you know, like, he's terrified. Like, she's like, I have information you need. I just have to access it by becoming a witch for a second. With the amazing scene <laughs> where her mouth and her eyes pop out, which is, like, yes. classic Burton, man. Like, so, okay, I feel like to properly situate this story, the film... It's helpful to go on a bit of a Burton binge here. So I, I tried to go back through all of his earlier films over the last like couple days here. And okay. I grew up loving Burton, but never really knowing him that well. Like I didn't know much about the guy himself or um, a lot of his earlier films. You should come visit. We could see him for tea. Yeah, you guys are close, right? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's probably around, you know. Just he's always around. Hit him up in a cafe. Where's he going to go? It's a pandemic. <laughs> so he... Uh, What's interesting about Burton is like he is an extremely visual guy. So he is like first and foremost an artist, like a hands-on. He would do like claymation models for Disney. Like that's like how he got his start. Then he he went on to become a director. But um, his earliest 
short film, Vincent, he was like 21 when he made it. And it's the probably the most like autobiographical work he's done, I think, because it's it's like a six minute short about a young boy who is so obsessed with monsters that he feels like an old, you know, kind of like depressed gothic man who like can't relate to the kids his age. And Burton himself has said that that was sort of his experience growing up. That like he one day found himself as a part of the out group and he's not sure how it happened, but he was seen as a bit of an outcast. And he was like, I felt like a normal kid growing up, but people put this label on me of like, well, this guy's different. This guy, you know, is not someone to be hanging out with or whatever. And so he always kind of resented that. And the idea of like it happening so soon in people's lives, you can be 10, 11, 12 years old and already you're becoming this social outcast, even though you've done nothing you know, you're just responding to the social environment around you. So he was trying to kind of process that through his movies. And I think it really shows you have Pee Wee Herman, who's sort of like an outcast in his town. Although I don't believe he wrote that script, but he directed that film. Um, Edward Scissorhands, who is very much an outcast in the town. Um, And there's a lot of like visual similarities between him and, and Sleepy Hollow that we'll definitely have to get into. Um, I realize I'm talking like way too much and this is going to be like a three hour thing. So um, this will be part one of five and then we'll carry on from here. Like there's so much content to cover here, but um, I feel like I'm rambling. So probably cut out this entire section if you can, just for everyone's benefit. Nope. Um, (laughs) But while we're, while we're speaking about Tim Burton for a second, like he felt like an outsider growing up, that's absolutely reflected in most of his films. Like, you know, Sleepy Hollow, Ichabod's, literally an outsider so anyways tim burton amazing great spooky what were we talking about (laughs) well i think so i was trying to i i think and i lost my own train of thought but i think so tim burton takes horror as a concept as a genre and what's fascinating about horror and science fiction and fantasy is they are all kind of reflections of society at the time it was created and horror in particular is a reflection of our fears, right? And so um, if you go back to the World War II and the Cold War after, our fears were communists living in our neighborhoods, right? Like invasion of the body snatchers and that kind of thing. And then you have kind of like the creature horror stuff. Um, that's, And then you get like the really gross um, in the 70s, the slasher horror and everything. So Tim Burton's version of horror, which kind of starts maybe with actually probably Frankenweenie, which was like his first film after Vincent. It starts there, I think. And it's, it's a bit like, it's very tactile. So um, there's a lot of, uh, everything is like claymation. It's very real. It's not CGI or digital in any way. And then uh, that carries through to Sleepy Hollow, which is certainly a horror film. But like, would you describe yourself as like ever feeling truly afraid? Or how do you feel about it? Mm, and I mean, that's kind of an interesting question, because we're looking back on like a 1999 film. So like right off the bat, we won't be as scared with that as we would in the time period. Kind of like Jaws. You know, when you rewatch Jaws, you're like, I'm not scared at all. But when it came out, everyone was like, oh, shark. (laughs) So I guess I would say when I saw it the first time, I don't remember being scared. I do remember being like a little spooked. Like it was one of those things that I would prefer to watch with people. But when I rewatched it again this morning, not spooked at all, but I could definitely feel kind of like a haunted hayride in that sense, where you're not really scared because you kind of know exactly what's going to happen. 
um, but you're like along for the ride and you're more enjoying that they're trying to scare you. I, yeah, that's like a perfect analogy. That's great. There is a surprising amount of levity in this story. And I, I think um, and Burton talked about how he was trying to do like homage to hammer horror of the like the 50s to the 70s, which you probably know way more about than I do. I'm not that familiar with that, like as a as a production company or whatever. Honestly, the biggest gap in film knowledge that I have is in respect to old time horror films, because, you know, this I don't want to get too deep on this podcast, but long story short, I was fairly sheltered as a kid. Uh, and so was unable to watch the horror films and scary films, which I wanted to because I've always been interested in film. And actually, on the subject of Tim Burton, one of the films I remember wanting to watch so desperately when it came out was Sweeney Todd. Not only did it look really cool and I was like, oh my god, it's a musical and it's a spooky, but it was getting like rave reviews, you know, everybody was talking about it. It had like, I think it had some Oscar buzz too. Uh, but anyways, I wanted to see it, and I wasn't technically the age to be able to see R-rated movies, so I couldn't see it, and was heavily dissuaded from seeing it. Uh, so I just kind of like low-key rented it on my iPod and watched it, and nobody knew. Very stealthy. I So I've actually, I've never seen Sweeney Todd. Um, maybe I'll wait until I get my next haircut, you know, to really just cement the occasion. But it has been about three and a half years since I've gotten a haircut, so it could be a little while. But I, I will get around to it. Eventually. Yeah, what I think, though, about, like... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I promise yeah. anybody listening to this, any of the digs that I have at Luke, I promise that they come from a place of friendliness. If they came from a place of unfriendliness, we would not be having this podcast right now. Yeah, whatever, Kim. Whatever you got to tell yourself. Fight me. <laughs> Just like Brown Bones would fight uh, Ichabod Crane. Although he never does. What a segue. He never does. So speaking of apt names, um, first of all, there's actually a term for that when your name is fitting of who you are as a person. Um, it's called an aptronym, which I never knew. I had to look that up. But Usain Bolt, Bolt's lightning bolt's very fast. He's a very fast runner. That's an aptronym. Ap- aptronym. I would mention on that note, I think that you would fall under that category as your name kind of fits you. And I would contextualize that in a Star Wars sense, because I think, like you said earlier, you do tend to, you know, you tend to take the optimistic side, you tend to take the positive side. And that is a foundational characterization of Luke Skywalker, because if he didn't see the good left in his father, Darth Vader, it would not have ended the way it did. And also, while I'm on this miniature soapbox, Palpatine is dead, and I refuse to accept the canonity of that last movie anyways ichabod crane his name fits himself yes go on well i like that theory about me relating to luke skywalker just don't tell my sister that's gonna get weird but so one interesting thing i think about tim burton is his whole kind of approach to horror i think is and this is something that stems from his own upbringing he was obsessed with horror growing up he watched a lot of horror movies and he said that what made him stand out is that these films were always designed to make you afraid of the monster, and he always identified with the monster. He always felt bad for them. He felt like he could relate to that experience. Maybe Frankenstein might be the most obvious example. Someone who is really guilty of doing nothing wrong but being misunderstood and um, and incredibly confused. And like, um, so he talks about how um, he's tried to pay homage to all these horror um, characters that he loved growing up. 
And he always tries to make the obvious villain into the actual hero of the story. Like in Edward Scissorhands, the village people, the townspeople, are way worse than Edward Scissorhands is. You know, they're so judgmental and they're clicky and they're gossipy and they're always trying to shape him to their own ends. And Edward Scissorhands is just like this innocent, wide-eyed, uh, robotic boy just walking around, you know? Like, he he has no, uh, you know, like, no malice in his heart. But the few times he does do some bad things is because he was, like, confused or boxed into a corner, um, which is a theme that's also in Frankenweenie and, and Vincent. So, mm-hmm. yeah. We should probably get back to Sleepy Hollow, though. (laughs) (laughs) Sleepy Hollow. No segue necessary. I'm just going to... Something I have written in my notes that I do want to talk about, that we did kind of touch on, but just to get like a big overall note, one of the biggest differences between the original story of Sleepy Hollow and the movie is basically everything that happens after Ichabod gets pranked by the Chads. Basically everything after that is new material. Because I think from what I spark notes what happens in the the legend of Sleepy Hollow is, you know, he goes to town, he's like trying to woo the blonde chick and it's like not really working or and the Chads get upset and they prank him pretending to be the Headless Horseman and he runs away because he's like embarrassed. That's what I know of it from, again, Spark Notes. But the movie, that kind of happens. I mean, like it's still a little bit different the way that it's all set up anyways, but there is a point at which Ichabod gets pranked by the Chads. That's I like to call them the Chads. It makes sense. It's so much easier too. <laughs> yeah, because I don't know their names. <laughs> no, they're very confusing. Like I, I just I don't have a hang on Dutch names. So like all the Van Tassels and the Van Garretts and everything, it's it all kind of blends together. Right. So yeah. So in the movie, after they prank Ichabod, everything else that happens is new, and that section ends at like twenty something minutes into the film, I think. So, like, 75% of the film, give or take, is new stuff. Like, new characters, new storylines, new everything. Yeah, I mean, pretty much the entire movie is different. So, he's not a school teacher, right? He's a police constable. Um, He goes to the town not to teach, but to try and solve a triple homicide. When he gets there, Brahm... So, this is actually, like, something I want to get into more in a minute, but... Brahm is totally underused in the film, and I think it's okay. It was a a choice to make, but the love triangle that is the heart of the entire original story is basically lost in the movie. Brahm has, like, three scenes in the movie when he's jealous when um, she's blindfolded and she kisses him the first time, and then um, again uh, when he pulls the prank on him. And then the last time is when he's fighting against the horseman on the bridge and he gets cut in half, you know? And so, like, Brahm has, like, a very short arc in this story. And he dies, like, halfway into the thing. I remember when it when it happened because I had just read the original story and Brahm is very much, like, you know, given as much page time as Ichabod is. And then when I watched the movie and he dies halfway through, I was like, oh, yeah, they just kind of toss Brahm aside in this story. But I think it's okay because... They were focused on more of the witchcraft, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and on that note, on like the way that Brahms dies, it's interesting that that scene, he gets cut in half, like through his torso or hips, whatever. It cut in half, wherever you want to consider it half. It's, so it's interesting that he gets cut in half. It's interesting that Ichabod, who's also fighting the horseman with this guy, only gets like poked a little bit in the chest. He's like, poke. He's not stabbed straight through. But anyways, it's interesting that those are the ways that they're wounded because obviously the whole head 
headless horseman shtick is to decapitate, like cut off the head. But, you know, as the story develops more, we learn that that's his shtick because, like, someone has his skull. And, like, so it's the heads. It's important in all these different ways. And at that scene, he was not going after those characters. So he wasn't like, what I need to do is cut off your head. He was like, I just want to stop you so I can go and cut off this other guy's head. Hmm. But I just thought that was cool that they definitely paid attention to detail in that regard like their own detail i guess instead of just being like well i guess he's just gonna decapitate chad yeah that's a that's a good i I was kind of wondering too like how many decapitations there are in this story oh so the tagline of this film do you know the tagline on the poster i think it's brilliant what is it so it's just heads will roll oh god isn't that perfect and it i think it perfectly speaks to like the fun gory atmosphere of the film which Okay, speaking of atmosphere, man, like we haven't even talked about this yet, but that is the single, that is the calling card of this film is if you want to have an atmospheric experience, you are hard pressed to find a better film than Sleepy Hollow. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it, it's like, uh, okay, we were talking, oh, yes. Um, speaking of changes to the original script, the biggest change, I think, is that in the story, it's actually open-ended as to whether it's the real Headless Horseman who chases him across the bridge and throws the jack-o'-lantern at him. So like you said, it's implied, sort of, that it's actually Brom just trying to scare him out of town so that he can get the girl in the end. But it's not explicitly said. And it's also not made explicit what actually happens to Ichabod. He disappears. They find his hat left behind. But there's like a, an urban myth, or I guess a rural myth, that... He went to another town and, you know, shacked up with another rich girl out there or something. But it's never actually settled in the story. And in the movie, it's made very explicit from the beginning that the Headless Horseman is not only real, but witchcraft is real. There's a witch out in the woods, which is very different than in the original story. Katrina herself is interested in witchcraft. And Ichabod Crane's mom is killed because her husband assumes that she is performing witchcraft in front of the fire when she makes those little symbols in the dust there so it's i think it actually i think there's actually like a tremendous amount of depth to ichabod's character and it's more implicit it's not really like the arc isn't made obvious in the story but if you kind of dig into it a little bit in the very first scene he's speaking at court talking about how these are medieval methods being used here um, of justice and you know we need to um, get rid of medieval torture devices and everything right and so so ichabod crane has a fascinating arc because um when you look at he has these memories of what happened to his mom but he's not exactly clear but we know that instinctively in the very beginning he is adamantly opposed to the medieval methods of torture as a form of justice he has these dots on his hands and we don't know what they are from he doesn't know what they're from and then as he has these as he enters sleepy hollow which is described as like a town that the world has sort of passed by. And so um, it talks about how the long superstitions that have kind of permeated this village here, this Sleepy Hollow, um, they only can exist because it's such an insular town that doesn't have newcomers coming in very often. And he says in all the other towns, these kind of myths grow and then die as the people move out of town or in big cities where everything is just changing all the time anyway. So the only places where these stories can really kind of linger is in these small little, you know, bucolic villages like this. And that's a cool description of Sleepy Hollow. 
Yeah. Something I do want to mention that is not at all what you just talked about. A similarity between the source material and the film is that Ichabod's horse is named Gunpowder in both. That's one little thing that's yeah. there. <laughs> so his horse is named Daredevil. Do you know what Brahm's horse is named? Oh, I mean, oh, no. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No. I just ruined it. No. Um, <laughs> no. Is it? Is it? daredevil you're too I'm good at this kind of guessing at this cut it out kim what do you got a glossary in front of you you know what while we're asking questions i'm gonna throw in a trivia question it's time i hope you did study up on tim burton because this is a really easy one so here goes so sleepy hollow is tim burton's second r-rated movie in 30 seconds can you tell me which movie was his first ed wood God damn it. Yep. Yes. All right. <laughs> it's actually I knew you would get it like instantly. Well, it's actually the one I didn't see. So I started off with Vincent, his short film when he was like 21 and this amazing prodigy working for Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I folded it up with um, Pee Wee Herman, which was like his first breakout into a career. Actually, sorry, Frank and Weenie, um, which is a bit of like a longer short. I think it's like a half an hour. Then I followed that up with Pee Wee Herman, his first major release. The success of Pee Wee Herman led to him getting hired on to do Batman and uh, and um, Edward Scissorhands. Nice. But Ed Wood is the one I have not seen So um, from his early years. It's one that I feel like we all know. We all know it was a movie. We all know the kind of concept and that it was a very big Tim Burton film. So yeah, Ed Wood was Tim Burton's first R-rated movie. Kick-ass, Tim. And then something else I want to throw into the podcast here. As a little fun fact, there's a hidden Mickey, and I was watching this movie again, you know, before we recorded, because I wanted to refresh myself, and I was watching it in the opening in, like, the first minute or two, there's, like, this this shot up close of a letter and red wax being dripped on it, you know, trying to be, like, reminiscent of blood, but, like, it's not. It's also, like, old-timey. Would you describe that as atmospheric, that scene? Absolutely. Um, so the wax is being dripped on this letter and it forms the shape of a Mickey face. And I was joking when I like paused the movie and I said to my roommate, I was like, look, it's a hidden Mickey. And then as I was looking up a couple of fun facts to throw in here, that was literally on IMDb. They were like, there's a hidden Mickey in the opening when the red wax is dripping. It makes a Mickey face. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Which I don't even know if this is like a Disney film. I don't think it is. I think it's Warner Brothers, right? Is it? I mean, it, it could certainly just be an homage to his beginning. Then it's probably just an accident. <laughs> if we're being honest, <laughs> right. three circles that just happen to be in a similar shape. Right. Just some idiot just posted on IMDb. Check out this Mickey Mouse thing. Exactly. No, but I think that's actually really cool. Um, there's also, and this could just be my imagination, but about a minute after that, um, they introduce the you know they roll the title credits and everything and so they introduce tim burton and you know johnny depp and when they show tim burton there's like a black uh fog behind it or like darkness behind his name and i swear for just like a split second it takes the shape of the batman logo behind him oh that would be cool i haven't read that on imdb or anything but that's my interpretation and i want to believe it's true so I'm going to have to take a closer look. For anybody listening, the movie is on Netflix right now. And I'm assuming it's going to be on Netflix throughout all of October. So if you haven't seen it in a minute and you're listening to all of this and you're like, oh my God, they love it. I love it. Let me go watch it. 
check it out netflix and another thing that i like to talk about on the podcast is so first of all most of these things that i talk about since there's already a film adaptation it's likely that there's going to be another because you know hollywood only knows how to make sequels these days and remakes god that's a dig at my own industry i'm sorry but we also we got to get better about that yeah man what are you you're hurting your own career here yeah right just digging my own grave when I researched this, there didn't seem to be any new adaptations in the works. But if and when there is, let's talk about how we would cast that movie. And I have a couple ideas here, so I'll say them and you can kind of think about some names in the meantime. So I'll give you some thinking time. But I kind of thought a really good Ichabod Crane would be the guy who played Tom and Baratheon in Game of Thrones, who's also in 1917. His name is Dean Charles Chapman. I could very much see him in that role, doing a good job. And then I thought alongside him, Emma Watson would make a good Katrina. Because also they're in like the same enough age group, looks-wise, that it would make sense. And it would also be a little bit better, because I know she's supposed to be 18, but we could stray away from that and make it more just about that she's like this eligible bachelorette, rather than like this fresh 18-year-old, which would be creepy. So anyways... Another idea that I had, the, the last two, the last two ideas that I had would be Benedict Cumberbatch as Baltus Van Tassel. So as Emma Watson's dad, which I know is weird and not visually no, making any sense. That's brilliant. No, I love it. I think like it would work. Yeah. And then also last one, I think as the headless horseman, Tom Hiddleston, because I think he needs the chance to just go wild. And I know Christopher Walken did an amazing job. And I would love to say, just bring him back again. But I would feel bad because if I'm already like making this whole new cast, there should be a new Headless Horseman. No offense, Christopher Walken. You're amazing. So tell me where Tom Hiddleston comes from as the choice. I was Googling British actors (laughs) for for Headless Horseman. I didn't have any ideas. So I was Googling uh, British actors. And one of the first ones that come up is Tom Hiddleston. And it's one of the images of him with like a beard and like facial hair. He has a little bit of like a naturally strange look on him with the facial hair. Mm. And I was reminded of like, he dug pretty deep and pretty weird for for the original Loki. And I was like, I just think that he would have so much fun in that role. Because all of the other roles that I know Tom Hiddleston to do well are like very, very high level, like British Shakespeare type things. So there's like a, a good sense of grounding to a lot of those roles. You know, they're very human. But I would want to see him try something out of his range because i know he can do it i know that tom hiddleston would be like headless horseman all right let me access the weirdness inside of me and we're going to be this crazy decapitating madman on a horse i like that um i think in a similar vein you could say uh, michael fassbender um i think you see a bit of that kind of alienness to him um, when he plays david in prometheus and i also think he has the kind of the body posture that you need for the headless horseman so do you know here's a little trivia back at you here um i had to look this one up because one of my favorite things about sleepy hollow the film is that the headless body of the headless horseman is terrifying and and it was hard for me to like put into words exactly what i love so much about it but i think it's a couple things one that cape is like perfect just everything about it is like rustic and gothic and and heavy but like otherworldly at the same time right and it's 
I think what it is, is it's how smooth he walks and how determined he is, like very robotic, but smooth at the same time in his determination to get whatever head he's assigned to go get. And so um, I, it was a lot of acting in the shoulders of that actor who plays him. And I looked it up who it is, and his name is Ray Park. And can't believe I'm going to say this, but you might know him from the Star Wars prequels. Oh my god. <laughs> We're bringing it full circle. Wait, is he only in one of them? Uh, yes. Oh god, okay. Is he human? Um, is anyone human in Star Wars? I feel like, <laughs> the like, Jedi, uh, most of the Jedi. Just think about it this He's way. He's not so, human, okay. I'll, I'll describe Ray, so Ray Park, the human being, the actor, is um, he was a stunt man, martial arts kind of uh, expert. Oh my God! Is he Darth Maul? Yes. Oh my God! You got it. It was that easy. Yes. <laughs> so I, what's actually really crazy is like, so I was, I was so just captivated, just enraptured by his performance as the headless horseman that I went back against my better judgment. I went back and I watched the Star Wars prequels. Just the duel of the fates. your better judgment. Got that right. Part two coming, audience. But I went back and I watched the duel of the fates, you know, scene where Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are facing off against Darth Maul at the end of Phantom Menace. And I just tried to imagine. I put, like, my thumb out and I tried to, like, cover his face. And I was just watching his mannerisms. And you, it's totally him. Like, it's it's the way he moves so smoothly but also with such determination, like his shoulders set in when he's walking and he has a bit of like a, like a very smooth gait to him. You know who else, while we're talking about like kind of stunt actors, um, who else I think might make a good headless horseman in that respect, the fish shape of shape of water, the actor who played the the fish guy in that, Mm -hmm. who I think is also well known as being, he, I think he also did the fawn in, Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. So that guy is Doug Jones, I believe is his name. Doug uh, Jones. Yeah. Yes. So he's okay. a very lanky man. He is um, like 6'4", maybe, but he's like 100 pounds. You know, he's just like, he's got that perfect figure to fit into different costumes. And so he's great. He's the actor that everyone has seen, but no one recognizes, you know, like that kind of guy. Um, mm-hmm. He's amazing. But, oh, so my uh, casting choices for... Um, for Sleepy Hollow, if I were to do this, okay, I'm going to cheat a little bit, but for um, Ichabod Crane, I'm actually going to use someone that was already cast in the 1980 TV adaptation of this story. So you know how you mentioned that there's like eight films of this or whatever? Mm -hmm. So I watched one of them, and okay, I'm going to describe Ichabod Crane for you, and you tell me which actor they chose in the year 1980. Ready? He's lanky. Got a bit of a like a softer, higher pitched voice. Steve Martin. Close, close. Uh, A bit of a womanizer, bit of like a flirt. Um, Musically gifted, especially with the piano. About six two, six three. Oh, I can't think of any piano playing actors off the top of my head. Yeah, that was that was probably not a very helpful clue. But so what they chose is who I would choose because I think he is. The perfect Ichabod Crane, if you are trying to be true to the source material here. They chose none other than Jeff Goldblum. Oh my god. Excellent. Perfect, right? 
Yeah. So, and so you can find the whole thing, friends and family. You can find this entire 1980s TV adaptation. It's about an hour and a half. It's on net or on YouTube. And the top rated comment is Ichabod found a way. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. I can't get over that. That is amazing. Yeah. You should, honestly, I think Jeff Goldblum should be like the main character in pretty much anything we do nowadays. But oh, yeah. That's just me. And speaking of iconic quotes, there's a quote from that movie that I had to write down because, it again, it's just beautifully done. So at one point, he finds out that, and again, they go wildly off script, too, um, in comparison to source material. So he's talking to one of the fathers uh, in town who has an eligible daughter, and the guy's trying to cozy up to Ichabod because he wants him to marry his daughter. And so he goes... Um, you know, Brown Bones killed the last school teacher here. Like, you got to be careful. You know, if you're single, he's going to come after you. And he goes, Brown Bones assaulted the last schoolmaster just for looking at Katrina Van Tassel. And he goes, assaulted, a peppered, and a roasted him too. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's also so classically your humor, which unfortunately in our years of friendship has leaked into my humor. Yeah, like this, oh, like, good. Kind of dad humor puns. Yeah, Love I thought it. you seemed just less funny in general. So I'm glad that I've leaked, I've oozed that, I've oozed comedic inadequacy over. All right, I think that would be, I think that'd be a great casting choice. Honestly, who do you think could be a good Katrina alongside Jeff Goldblum? Keep in mind, it would be even creepier if she is actually around 18 alongside jeff goldblum so what if we just like imagined that the age thing didn't exist so if we could find someone around jeff goldblum's age yeah that tv episode or that tv series did not uh do that so like both brahm and katrina were easily clearing their mid-40s it was like the weirdest (laughs) thing brahm is like still going around being the prankster dude but he's got like gray in his beard and it was just like a really strange uh casting choice but if I were to cast Katrina, that's the, she's the one character I didn't uh, think about for casting. Um, if I was going to cast Katrina, then Tassel. oh, you know, you know who I would want to say off the bat. Oh my God, what is her name? The the quintessential British white woman, oh. not the one who plays M in James Bond. Uh, well, she's uh, pretty old. I mean, do you mean her um, name has Karen an M in it? No. Kira Knightley, in my mind, Kira Knightley is like eternally 27. Yeah. Oh, you mean in 1980, if you had to cast it in 1980? Oh, I, I was okay. like, Well, isn't okay. that what you're saying? Because you were like M, and I was like, isn't she like six, you know, six years old or something? But, um, oh, I was just saying more like we would cast it so we have like Jeff Goldblum in 2020 alongside who else in 2020. Oh, I see. And I was going to think of, God, I really can't remember her name. She was also, she did, she's like the the opener in Documentary Now. I, I've never actually watched that show. You're not thinking oh, of Meryl God. Streep, are you? I mean, she's not, not Meryl British, Streep. But... No, no, no. Oh, God. It's on the tip of my tongue. It's one of the, I know her. I know her name, but I just can't mix the letters in my head to make the right thing. Anyways, she would be great. Isn't that the worst? <laughs> yeah. Because in- inevitably, I'm going to look back on this when I'm like editing or listening or whatever. And I'm like, yeah. God damn it, Kim, like, it was this person. God, I'm an idiot. Yeah. Just do a quick Google search. Yeah. Oh, one thing that also should be said, there is also some very clear and uncomfortable um, racism in the original story. I'll read a quote here, and it's pretty bad. 
So, mm-hmm. um, so he gets invited to this big dinner party, and this is when he's going to finally propose to Katrina. This is going to be his big night. It's the climax of the story, and he gets his invitation um, through a courier. So the rich Van Tassel family sends someone out to go deliver his invitation, and this is how he describes the person delivering the invitation to Ichabod when he's sitting in his classroom. So he says, um, he's just kind of sitting there by himself thinking about how much he would love being rich and happy with Katrina. And so he says, a kind of buzzing stillness reigned, yeah, a kind of buzzing stillness reigned throughout the schoolroom. It was suddenly interrupted by the appearance of a Negro in tow cloth jacket and trousers, a round crowned fragment of a hat, like the cap of Mercury, and mounted on the back of a ragged, wild, half-broken colt, which he managed with a rope by way of halter. Um, Ugh. Yeah, um, I'm going to skip the next sentence just to get to the actual part this of it. This is the Washington Irving story, yeah? Yeah. Oof. Um, That's disgusting. He, yeah, uh, yeah, the original. He came clattering up to the school door with an invitation to Ichabod to attend a merrymaking or a quilting frolic to be held that evening at Meneer Van Tassel's, and having delivered his message with that air of importance and effort at fine language, which a Negro is apt to display on petty embassies of the kind, he dashed over the brook and was seen scampering away up the hollow, full of the importance and hurry of his mission. Oh my god. Yeah. The sad thing is like this was in what, 1820? 1820. When this came out and we're not we are not nearly as better than that as we should be. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think that particular description would fly in 2020, but I think still a lot of terrible inappropriate racist shit flies in 2020, not only in film but also in literature. Yeah. That's just that's gross. Ugh. Yeah. To think, like, this is 40 years before Lincoln's elected. Like, this is a time where it was, like, so accepted as a way of life that it was beyond comment. Like, it's not even mentioned in here. He's not given a name, this person. Like, they're seen as just, like, I don't know. Like, just this character is is seen as just, like, an object in the story and not a human being, you know? And it's, like, it's so beyond even being mentioned at the time that it's just so like ugly you know like at least we can like talk about it now and like explain how you know to not do something like that when you're actually making the remake or something but like i don't know i just as i was reading the story i was just like shocked that that kind of thing was in a kid's tale you know yeah and you know what i'm so i'm going to change my recasting i'm going to change it instead of dean charles chapman i want the guy who was in that episode of black mirror five million merits he was also in Black Panther as one of the other leaders. I'm totally forgetting his name. Yeah, the main guy in Get Out, right? Is that the same guy? Yeah, because he was on the... Is that is Five Million Merits where he's on the treadmill yes, to get yes, points? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, okay. Yeah. Yep. What is his name? Um, his name God, is Daniel Kaluuya. Kaluuya. Da- yeah. yeah. He should play Igabod Grain. I think he'd make a good one. Yeah, it'd be perfect. A small small little bit of a fuck you to washington back in 1820 (laughs) yeah i just i i I guess my big takeaway for this episode is that we've come a long way in storytelling there are some very obvious problematic issues with racism and sexism in this original story um, that dramatically overshadow any kind of like fun nice turns of phrase that we talked about at the beginning but 
hats off to Tim Burton for making like an incredible film that changes literally everything from the top bottom, um, top to top down. That's what I mean. Um, changes everything from the top down and just dramatically like creates a new work of art that not only lets you sort of identify with the outcast, whereas Ichabod Crane in the original story is just like a shallow womanizer, really doesn't care about other people. In this, he's like a deeply caring person who's trying to bring enlightenment to a town that is seeped in superstition and is, you know, finger pointing and suspicious of one another and um, is able to use his powers of deduction to actually solve this thing, which is also a nice kind of homage to like Edgar Allan Poe writing. Um, so Edgar Allan Poe would use this, um, he used this phrase, God, I had to write it down because it's such a crazy word. But so when Edgar Allan Poe created his detective, Auguste Dupin, um, he would talk about his powers of ratiocination, ratiocination, his powers of deduction. That was just Poe loved fun, fancy words like that. But <laughs> my boy Poe. But so he, he like there are scenes where Johnny Depp in this movie is like, you know, I shall use my binoculars and assess the situation. And, you know, I, I shall perform an autopsy. You know, he's trying to be like very scientific about this stuff. That was really cool to see. Yeah, this movie is really fun in a lot of ways. And kind of the overall thing we want to get out of this is Sleepy Hollow from 1999 is considerably better than the original short story. It's an excellent example of where a film can perform in ways that a story cannot. And I that's why I love this podcast, Kim. I, this is such a brilliant idea for a podcast because this is a great example of where the sense of immediacy, the sense of um, empathy that you get from a film is just so much more powerful than you can get from this kind of slow-talking, omniscient narrator who's keeping all of his characters at a distance for the sake of clarity in the story. Whereas this puts you in the action. In the opening scene, you are the headless horseman cutting off the dude's head when he's standing at the scarecrow. You know, you are Johnny Depp in certain scenes, you know, like, Oh, it's just amazing. It's such a, a, <laughs> a spectacular feat of cinematography and everything else. Even the artwork, when they're first traveling to New York, it's kind of based on, like, um, Roger Ebert points this out in his review. It's based on the Hudson River School paintings of, like, the 1800s, the romantic era of painting in America. Oh, wow. And so, like, the kind of the the soft pastel kind of color scheme, the, the reds and the blues and the uh, the oranges and, you know, like, the fall colors, they're all very gently kind of painted onto the canvas of the film as he's making his way out to Sleepy Hollow and then his way back at the end. And it's just, it's a beautiful tip of the hat to American history, the good parts of American history, and, you know, scrapping all of the ugly, horrible sexism and racism of the original story. So, yeah. Well said. I mean, A, thank you for being here and having all of this wealth of knowledge to bring to the table. But especially, I appreciate that you can contextualize both stories historically and like have a knowledge of like where society was at that time, what was the historical focus on everyone's mind, etc. Because that is a trait fairly unique to a Luke Swankowski who studied political theory and constitutional democracy. <laughs> Yeah, back in the I mean, day <laughs> well i'm almost positive everything i've said so far has been wrong so like please dear listener i would suggest that you ignore everything i've said so far and you know enjoy the film for what it is it's gorgeous kim 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun. This is like, <laughs> I, I feel like this is, first of all, this felt like a bit like an exam, like all the brushwork or all the prep work I was trying to do to get ready for this thing. Um, and it was fun to just have a deadline to force me to like be artistic and creative again and like spice up my day-to-day movie watching habits. So thank you. This is like, this has been a, a fun ride. Yeah, man. Anytime. And thank you for being here. And you know, we'll see you on some of the future episodes. Sounds good. Hit me up when you're doing the prequels. <laughs> yes. And that's a wrap. If you enjoyed this week's episode, we'd appreciate if you'd follow the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you're listening from. You can also find exclusive episode release schedules and more on our Instagram, Flip the Script with Kim. Thank you for your time, and we hope you'll tune in for next week's episode. Peace out.